This podcast is brought to you by All Things Film. <coughs> no, it, it really is. All Things Film, the web's premier collection of independent movie and TV related podcasts. For more, check out www.allthingsfilm.co.uk or search All Things Film on iTunes, Stitcher or TuneIn Radio. And now, on with the show. Welcome to Podcast on Fire 195, Gambling Season, the finale of it, covering God of Gamblers Part 3, Back to Shanghai, and God of Gamblers 3, The Early Stage. There's plethora of free here, so welcome to Part 3 and the final part of our God of Gamblers series, Retrospective. And we conclude with God of Gamblers 3 and God of Gamblers 3. So let that sink in for a moment. Because <laughs> that is confusing from the get-go. But what it all means is that we conclude the Stephen Chow run as the character of Dorsing or the Saint of Gamblers by talking of his time travel adventure back to Shanghai in God of Gamblers Part 3, Back to Shanghai. And also, despite there being no additional Chow Yun-Fat movies as Ko Chun, the God of Gamblers that, that you saw in uh, 1989 and 1994, in 1996, Wong Jing directed a prequel to the events in his classic 1989 movie, God of Gamblers, and cast Leon Lai as a young Ko Chun in God of Gamblers 3, the early stage. Is it confusing, you think, Paul Fox, to anyone, or is this fairly clear when all is said and done? Are there more complex universes than the God of Gamblers universe? Well, I don't know. This one, uh, this one for Hong Kong cinema kind of gets... Uh, into some interesting levels of complexity, to be sure, where we'll uh, talk a little bit more about how these universes extend even further, I think, at the end of uh, today's uh, episode. Maybe it's more complex than I I think, and maybe I've forgotten some details that make it super complex and uh, my brain will just melt on the show. And I'm Kenny B, by the way, and uh, we are going to get into the time travel adventures of uh, seeing in a little bit, but first some brief contact information. This is Podcast on Fire and Gambling Season on the Podcast on Fire network. We are on podcastonfire.com along with all the other shows and bonus episodes. Uh, various uh, countries uh, cinema is covered through our shows, Korea, Taiwan, Japanese and what have you, and Hong Kong. If you have any questions or feedback, use our email address, uh, podcastonfire at googlemail.com. If you want to reach us on Facebook, you can do so through surfing to our page. Surfing. I, I don't think I've used the term surfing the web in like a decade. <laughs> I just thought I, I aged myself really, really rapidly by saying surfing the web. So there you go. But you can reach us on facebook.com forward slash POF network. And leave a like. And if you want to interact with us more extensively, you can do so in the Facebook discussion group that is called Podcast on Fire Network. So you can just find it by searching that term on Facebook. Our Twitter handle is at Podcast on Fire. And my writing of various and uh, reviews of various Hong Kong movies, Taiwanese movies, um, various genres, but focus on 
category three and ninja movies and uh, some Taiwanese uh, gritty 70s and 80s genre pieces over at SoGoodReviews.com and my video reviews are located at SleazyKVideo.com and my Twitter handle is at SoGoodReviews. Podcast on Fire is of course available on iTunes so if you use it to have this podcast delivered to you please take the time to leave a star rating about uh, the show and if you have a few more minutes in your day Write a sentence or two about the show. That will act perfectly fine as a review, and we would love to see some more reviews up there. And finally, Stitcher Radio is the place to go if you want to stream the various Podcast on Fire Network shows. You can do it on their website, but they have a smooth application available on the Apple App Store and Google Play. So check it out. And Paul, people know you are a fine podcaster in your own right, not just on this show, but you, you have your own show recently rebooted. So I uh, want to tell listeners uh, about that and where it is on the net. Yeah, you can find us over at our uh, kind of our hub website. If you want to surf there, that's uh, equally fine. Uh, we are at congcast.com. That's K-O-N-G-C-A-S-T dot com. And currently the show is looking at uh, uh, current movies that are out in the Hong Kong cinema um, you know, the current week or, or the week before still have a little bit of a buffer time between the time we record and the time that I can actually edit and get things posted up. But I'm hoping to reduce that in months to come. So, yeah, you can drop by us there and look for us on the various social media platforms as well. We, while you surf to that address, you can listen to some God of Gamblers-esque music from, in this case, God of Gamblers Part 3, Back to Shanghai from 1991. And after the short musical break, we'll return to talk of that movie. Welcome back, and the first review of this gambling season finale is God of Gamblers Part 3, Back to Shanghai, with Stephen Chow. It's his run we're still covering, him as Do Sing, and plot from the Love HK film review of the film. Deviating even further from its inspiration, the third God of Gamblers film takes Stephen Chow's Saint of Gamblers and sends him back in time. The plot device which enables his time travel is a cadre of psychic kung fu warriors who do battle with Sing over the last film's victory. Therefore we get John Shing with the weird eye coming back for this movie. The concentration of wacky ESP types sends the Earth's magnetic field into a tizzy and Sing gets sent to 1937. There he encounters an effeminate ancestor played by Maltat. And he's also in the movie as his uh, Uncle Tat character as well. And he even hangs out with the Bund character Ding Lick, who was played in the TV series The Bund by Ray Loy, and is also played by Ray Loy for this movie. And then there's assorted wacky episodes involving mainland acting goddess Gong Li as identical twins. One is a haughty ice princess, but the other is a sweet, lovable, mentally challenged girl who Sing falls for. Plus, gambling and fighting. Uh, why don't you share your brief opinion first with us, and I'll do mine after you, Paul. So, the floor is yours. This film kind of goes so far off into left field, it can be a, kind of hard to even try and take it seriously in the context of what we started with, right? That is the uh, original God of Gamblers film with uh, Chow Yun-Fat as, as Coach Hun. And interestingly here, so the the English title, we'll just talk about the titling first. So, the English title is God of Gamblers 3, 
uh, but not number three. It's Roman numeral three, back to Shanghai. The Chinese title is actually uh, the Gambling Knight. So it's the same Chinese characters as God of Gamblers 2, which we talked about last time, right? So this is G G Gambling Knight 2, basically, in Chinese. As you mentioned, Singh's character is Dole Singh, right? He's the gambling saint. He's not the gambling knight. Andy's the gambling knight. So Andy's not even in this film. So it, the title is like referring to a character who never even even shows up, which, it, you know, it's kind of just interesting how the wordplay has us all over the field here in terms of both the English title and uh, the Chinese title. But of course, this is coming right on the heels of the success of the second film. And so I think they just wanted to keep that title going kind of as a branding measure, I guess, rather than going back to um, the all for the winner Chinese title, which was uh, Dou Seng. And same in English too, I guess. Uh, while yeah. Because somewhere, like for English language uh, viewers, whether in Hong Kong or outside, God of Gamblers is a familiar brand by now. So why not keep it, keep it going despite having another Chow on the cover, if you will. But I guess, I mean, technically... It, it's really more of an all for the winner two kind of movie, right? Yeah, yeah. It's it's moved back towards solely being you know Stephen Chow and Mantat and and their story more than anything else. But in short, uh, does it work or not as a movie? Yeah, I think it does. I mean, if you are somebody who enjoys uh, things like crazy Japanese manga, you know, with uh, elements of zaniness that don't make sense. You know, things that defy physics, um, science fiction that doesn't really have any applicable science involved. So we, you know, we get time travel here that's just kind of from far from out of left field. Um, so this is much more of a film that's in the comic book realm. And it's we I've talked before about how, you know, in the in the um, God of Gamblers 2, the powers get extended um, to, you know, extreme levels compared with, to what they started with in All for the Winter. And here is more of the same. Now, you know, um, you've got multiple people with multiple powers and um, the combination of which, which is visually very interesting and, and kind of fun, uh, but, you know, propels people back through time. And you've got the, the, the gimmick of a phone that can still work, you know. So, I mean, this has been a, a, a gag that's been used for, um, some somewhat serious movies, you know, where a person has a like a ham radio or a phone that can be used to talk to somebody. That Dennis Quaid movie? I don't remember what yeah. it was called. He he was in a movie, I believe. Well, well, we'll we'll, we'll stop you right there and try and get, get into it uh, in the in the in depth here. But my, my short opinion, uh, it's very competent. It's stylistically bigger, bigger conceptually and sillier conceptually. But because of the two-hour running time, the gags and the laughs seem quite spread out and sometimes even more subdued. But the concept is fun. There's a lot of laughs here, and it is an entertaining time, but I found myself uh, looking at the movie that it kind of felt a bit lower in the volume, and I, I, maybe it's just because I like the smaller, tighter God of Gamblers 2 with Stephen Chow and Andy Lau, that feeling of a smaller, tighter local movie. But it, there's nothing wrong by if you want to reach out and like expand your universe and try to make a bigger movie. And certainly Wong Jing, is uh, who directed this movie, is making a bigger movie here and, and got some technical crew to realize that because it's a shot by director of photography royalty, Peter Powell. So the movie looks pretty dynamite, despite also being a silly uh, silly movie. But the first question off the bat, is the running time warranted, do you think? The two-hour running time in this case? 
Well, I think that at this point in the series, they were trying to make, uh, you know, make it more of a big blockbuster feel um, because of the success of the previous films. And so I think they were trying to make it longer so that that it had that kind of aspect to it, though I don't think it necessarily works. I do agree with you that it, it does uh, make the pacings a bit off and it makes some of the things uh, carry on a, a bit too long. And, and I think that's a point I'll kind of, kind of come back to. There are a couple of things in this movie that I don't really like that I think, you know, could have been uh, taken out altogether and it still would have been a fine film. It really sets the tone like we're going to open big, bigger, better, faster. So there's massive camera moves initially when we see this magic academy that John Ching seemingly runs. So all of a sudden there's Dynasty Warriors coming in here. Actor Lao Shun has a cameo. Lao Shun played Wong Keying in the Once Upon a Time in China series, uh, Wong Fei Hong's father. Uh, and uh, I, I love Lao Shun. He's a fantastic character actor, often in these uh, period movies of the time. I think he played a eunuch in uh, one of these uh, swordplay movies in the beginning of the 90s. He was uh, one of the, I think he was like one of the big bads in, I want to say, Go, uh, Go, Chinese Ghost Story 2. Yeah, and, and he was like a, a super-powered eunuch character, very similar to the guy who kind of gets teleported in here. Yeah, it opens like that, very frantically, which is good. Like, into a movie we go, uh, but also into a movie we go with the silly stuff, as we open with Stephen Chow on the toilet opening a jar, because that's the only place. I've, what is it? that he, He's kind of career-coached and not fed properly, so I think he's like hiding in the toilet to, um, to, to get some snacks, and uh, Uncle Tad catches him in the act while he's trying to open a jar in the toilet so good setup like those like not the it's not original gags and the humor here where we think he's taking a dump and he's doing something else but Stephen Chow is good at that and their their banter is at at this point quite strong still uh, but the, the overall feel of the movie is that their banter is kind of running on a little bit of autopilot and empty as well because they're they're still part of the god of gamblers in English series so it's also a point that I'll, I'll hammer home later that it's good that this was enough like enough was enough after this one and they all could branch out doing different stories rather than being confined to god of gamblers uh, it's funny with uh, saying you, you don't get a firm grip on him as such in this first scene because the media is is all over all over uncle tat and Singh, and he's still being career coached and he seems to still be a kid and not knowing where to how to be in front of the media and how to steer his career. But he also kind of knows, you know, quite a funny gag, how to make a great speech, like all great gamblers do. So we get that whole, he says in Chinese, like, and extends it, I am the saint of gamblers, and all, like, it runs for a good 30 seconds. Uh, before he introduces himself and has his great speech. But, uh, I, I love that gag because the subtitles go like, great guys great guys give low-key speeches. And then he goes into that silly silly bit, which is the least like extravagant part of the movie, I guess, this opening. It's not like Peter Powell style here and big concepts like time travel. It's just uh, Uncle Tat and Stephen Chow being silly together. Um, so, I, I guess the natural question, do you think it still uh, works there into play, or is it running on empty for you as well? No, I think it works. And, and the interesting thing is I've seen this film multiple times, and 
uh, I totally forgot about the toilet gag, and it still worked for me. You know, um, when when they, you know, the, the way they sort of pull back and 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 do the reveal. Uh, the the scene where he's talking to the press, though, I think technically is pretty well done because if you go back and you look at that scene, um, it's a it's basically a center shot with the group of reporters kind of in a circle around the cameraman, and the cameraman's just panning around. No lighting set up, no other crew around, right? And and it, you, so you don't, you know, he does a full like 360 degree shot, and uh, you know, gets the reaction from all the 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 stand-ins, the extras, the actors who are there. And you don't see any crew, you don't see any lighting set up. You know, they might have had stuff on cranes, maybe, or, or stuff uh, hidden behind because there's a building there. But really, it's still technically a, a pretty uh, a pretty good setup for that shot. More than you expect out of Wong Jing. So I'm, I'm thinking the Peter Power influence is quite great on, on the movie in general and not just the stylistic, stylistic stuff because you're absolutely spot on. So it's not just basic point and shoot stuff uh, going on here because Wong Jing really, as a director himself, wasn't, uh, he didn't have style instincts. Uh, comedy was his thing, but that he didn't combine with, you know, whooshy, whooshy noises and whooshy massive camera movements or anything like that but it's a good choice especially when it goes into the shanghai section of the film then peter powell can show off uh, and the production too can show off uh, its uh, designer choices I- i'd wish they kind of went with this gag a little bit longer the whole toe massage thing but it only appears i think once in the movie that he he's learned a new skill at some point from Chun, and it's this toe massage or soul massage foot foot reflexology is uh, i guess the uh actual name that they have for this in english and why he's learned that god knows why but but it leads to yeah. a, it leads to a great uh, picture of uh, good times being taught by chai in fact <laughs> you remember the picture he shows yeah yeah they're just kind of sitting on a couch and uh, going at it you know massaging feet it's a terrible mock-up yeah quite obvious uh photoshop before we really had good photoshop <laughs> But it's it's such a surreal, like, hey, check it out. This is when we did this technique together. <laughs> but uh, Uncle Tat is starving, yeah. Poor Singh as well. Yeah, the the, the wonderful little um, banter about or dialogue about him, him getting his evening meal. And he gets this tiny bit of uh, uh, meat, uh, pork or what have you. And Singh is awestruck. Like, yeah. this will last five meals. <laughs> like... So Uncle Tat is really like uh, not um, really on uh, the side of Singh. He's kind of steering him uh, and manipulating uh, the kid here, uh, which is uh, not a serious aura of the movie, but I like picking up little details that through, like, this is the third movie from when uh, they met uh, in movies, anyway. And Uncle Tat is still um, looking to kind of gain something by having Singh by his side and uh, controlling him, and certainly he does. It doesn't seem this movie that this is very very heavy on the verbal gags to me. It seems quite clear, despite being a bit subdued. But the, the subdued nature is not me not understanding the barrage of frantic verbal assault or anything. It seems pretty subdued in that uh, area of uh, Cantonese uh, language comedy, if you will. So, what's your take on that? It's th- this film's interesting, and I wonder too because. By this point, the success of Stephen Chow, uh, I think he had gotten perhaps a little bit more a creative control in some ways because of his name and, and you know his draw. 
And I'm really curious as to the amount of influence he had on this film, because we start to see really some of the first glimpses of stuff that will become a little bit more of a staple for him in his later post-millennial films, right? Um, you know, the song and dance routine, mm -hmm. um, references to popular culture um, as, you know, sort of plot devices throughout. Part of me wonders how much of this film is coming from, uh, you know, Wong Jing, who is listed as in charge of the script, but how much of free reign uh, in terms of some of the creativity of some of this, some of these pieces was actually uh, left to Stephen Chow, if any. Yeah, I, I would guess that it's not something that was born like out of nowhere in 1994 or 95 when he started directing movies as well. I think it's fair to assume that he's an idea man. And he's going to bring forth ideas as much as he can. And it all led to, I remember uh, when they talked the uh, Forbidden City Cop. I think Vincent Koch or Stephen Chow essentially said that he was bringing so many ideas, he might as well be co-director. That would only be fair. But, but they went in, I think, with uh, Vincent Koch being the main director of Forbidden City Cop. That's five, uh, four years later. And uh, I think it's fair to assume that his, uh, his mind is uh, his own, uh, rather than just turning up to do a few gags that are scripted. It's a 90s movie too, by the way. That, that means gunplay. That means uh, gnarly fire stunts for the for the stuntmen and uh, different elements. Like we get the time travel element, uh, you know, firmly entering the movie with uh, John Ching and all the ESP guys attacking uh, Sing. And it's it's one of those like, why not? It's a 90s Hong Kong movie. They knew how to and wanted clearly to inject every kind of element, regardless of how ill. It might be on paper and on screen, but in the night is why not? I mean, I, I'm game for anything, and certainly this being a time travel movie, yeah, sure. Is Back to the Future a, 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 like an inspiration? Maybe, who knows? The series was over by then, but uh, hey, why not? I've always enjoyed that Hong Kong movies. Sometimes they don't settle on one thing and one mood, for better or worse, so... Uh, I guess that's my curious question to you. Has that been a charm with Hong Kong movies in the 80s and 90s, this like multi-mood experience that they can present sometimes? Yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, this is, again, something that I think builds on, especially if you have experience with other films in this era. You know, of course, Hollywood playing a factor and, and other bits of popular culture too, both local and, and sort of international bits um, that we'll get to talk about a little bit later. But uh, in this in this sort of opening scene where where these you know these guys with multiple powers come in and they're they're sort of teaming up to get revenge, just this whole concept for me I thought was was kind of fun and you know over the top and and we're getting you know in some cases like the one guy can do fire and you know so they each have kind of like their own power another guy is using telekinesis and kind of kind of like a you know has control physical control and then of course. It takes all of them in, in sort of the, this pyramid formation uh, to try and overcome uh, Stephen Chow's character, who's gotten apparently so powerful that uh, he can pretty much resist uh, a good portion of them uh, right up until the end. Yeah, exactly. It's not like the power, the usage of power drains him anymore. He's, he's trained well enough, I suppose, where he can uh, battle. It's a development. That, that, that's fun. It's fun, but also it's half a shame that this doesn't really feel like a God of Gamblers movie anymore. Uh, because, okay, they've done gr a great God of Gamblers movie, so they don't need to repeat it. But the, the more you experience this movie, definitely you don't think of gambling. 
you barely think of gambling. And and even a character like Charles Hung's uh, Long Mm, he's he's gone from this very able but quite rooted and grounded bodyguard to this Chai of Fat style hero that is uh, the awesomest, most awesome, awesome bodyguard ever. So so it's uh, they've consciously taken it over the top. But the more you let this movie run, you realize that it's it's barely a God of Gamblers movie anymore, but obviously a commercial decision, as you talked about with the titles, to to go with that angle. Like it'll 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 bring in the bucks, surely. Casting this with these people and naming it, uh, you know, God of Gamblers or or a Knight of Gamblers in the Chinese title, and uh, boom, you go. And it's interesting too when you see what happens to uh, his character, the Long Um character, in the course of this film. Much of the film, he's relegated to just kind of being in this um this office space right and he's in the police station and talking on the phone and having a few interactions with um uh Barry Wong uh, Wong Pingyu who, who is the commissioner of police yeah those are funny scenes but um when they do some of the shot transitions they're technically they don't match up well and i don't know if it's because they had a different unit uh handling those scenes if they were done later because they thought they wanted to you know they they won't needed a connection in in the form of a physical person back to the original film uh, you know and, and he uh, you know when you look at the characterization he is perhaps the most common character across the series because we've talked about you know charlotte chung showing up she shows up a lot but she's playing different characters throughout he is the one character who kind of is the same character um, showing up, you know, in in most of the films and in, and in both films that we're talking about today, although played by, um, you know, a different actor. You realize how how the crazy like God of Gambles was pretty crazy and over the top, but you realize that that is almost nigh unrealistic compared to where with taking with how he's portrayed as an action hero, the bodyguard, and obviously the time travel element. But they, it, it's it, it's a fun concept. But as I said, it it comes and goes in interest and certainly in hilarity, but all, always throughout quite entertaining. It It's nowhere near like uh, nearing a, a bad level or anything. That's my point. But uh, you mentioned, uh, for instance, I think last episode, you talked of how mainland dramas at one point, the various uh, Zhang Yimou, and Gong Li dramas, they, they travel the world to festivals because drama is easier. Comedy is harder. Uh, like, those world merge for one of two Stephen Chow movies. And what that means is that the mainland starlet Gong Li stars in a Hong Kong comedy with Stephen Chow. This is, uh, I don't know which one came first, uh, this or Flirting Scholar, but that's clearly her trying to break into a lucrative comedy market. She was more known as a dramatic actress, a great dramatic actress. And um, I always thought she and Stephen worked pretty well together because I love Flirting Scholar. It's a crazy-ass film. She's not meant to be a comedian as such here, but her two characters are fun to see here. It's not like a strained casting choice for me to have Gong Li in a silly Hong Kong movie or anything. Um, so I, I, I quite enjoy her two-movie stint with Stephen Chow here. So Yeah. Um, well, I have, here's, I, here I have to diverge from you a little bit because she does not do anything for me. I've never been a big fan of Gong Li. I mean, I think she handles 
the dramatic roles she's known for very well. But in terms of, you know, being a fixture in, in comedy, I think they could have gotten really any actress uh, to, to, to do the role she's doing here, even, even as a double role, which is she's not being asked to stretch very much, shifting between, you know, the simple girl-minded girl and, you know, the iced princess as, uh, as the uh, review uh, labels the two characters. Yeah, I'm just not not a big fan. I don't think she's uh, anywhere near as charismatic as, you know, some of the other starlets we've had. You know, certainly not uh, Charlotte Chung and definitely not uh, uh, Jacqueline M. Uh, M. Sin Lin from God of Gamblers 2. I, I'd, I'd much rather have them uh, coming in uh, to, to the roles here. But I do know that, you know, she was... Uh, you know, a, a known commodity on the mainland. And this is a period of time when 97 is not too far off and they're looking to try and make inroads. So how do you do that? Well, you bring in a popular mainland actress. And so you have this film and then um, Flirting or Flirtong Scholar from uh, two years later, I think in 93. Oh yeah, it was later, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think in that in that film, she works a little bit better for me, although I'm still... You know, uh, not you know, overly fond of 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 her uh, in that film either. But I, I like that. I like her role in that film a little bit more than I liked her in this one. Uh, in this one, I just kind of felt a little bit out of place, and that I would have liked to have seen uh, somebody that we had seen already. You know, Charlotte Chung or another uh, Hong Kong actress of of note. Which is very fair, and uh, I won't argue against that. It, for all intents and purposes, I actually like Gong Li more in her, her more earthy roles rather than the big period uh, efforts. And she did a wonderful movie on the mainland called Breaking the Silence, where she played a, a poor mother trying to raise her deaf son. Very good, and like not overly melodramatic, and just felt very real rather than some overly glamorous actress, you know, just getting a few dirty clothes put on her and that's a character all of a sudden no she was very 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 dedicated to that i think it's a 1999 2000 movie or something like that breaking the silence so i, I recommend it if you want to see um like a more um, dressed down gongli and uh i i won't knock her for her dramatic chops i mean i loved her in red sorghum and uh you know she is of course in the film that gets commented on uh, roughly in in part two right uh um uh, terracotta warrior and raise the red lantern of course i think though in terms uh, of comedic roles she just uh, there's not a lot there i i will say i did like her probably more than i ever have in in, in this kind of thing in what women want uh with uh, andy lau although that's not not a great movie um uh, by any any way shape or form but she seemed to as a much more mature actress you know she wasn't trying to play the young, pretty things that she's playing, trying to play here or in Flirting Scholar. She was a much more, you know, mature and, and, and business-minded you know, woman with modern sensibilities. And, and yet she was able to eschew some comedy uh, through that role in, in that film. So perhaps over the years she's, you know, been able to uh, temper her comedic side a little bit more. Uh, and that's perhaps why I like that film a little bit more than, the, than her role here. And going back to the movie as it switches to Shanghai in 1937. And it, without being like this big widescreen scope movie and what we have designed, look at all our design. It still is showcased 
quite well the uh, Shanghai setting and the production design and the costume design. Possibly shot at Shaw Brothers, uh, the outdoor set that we see as Stephen Chow walks into town for the first time, not really knowing what's going on and bumping into the Red Gang and the Black Gang. Could be Shaw Brothers, and uh, but it's certainly not uh, distracting from the comedy at hand. They're like, uh, so, so style isn't uh, style isn't taking over. And his entrance into Shanghai 1937, I, I, I do like because we got an inspiring, which I'm sure you haven't forgotten. And if you have, I'm going to remind you, an inspiring emergence of a Kung Fu style that Singh learns that he has. Um, you remember that he tries his Fist of Fury and it doesn't work. So, but, but what does work, if you remember the Kung Fu style of uh, the Kung Fu of in between, I believe he calls it. Yeah, it's a it's it's a great comedic uh visual take on you know the, the the classic you know kung fu punch and they still use some of the same kind of shot setups and you know you'll remember uh, you talked about it in the the earlier film when he does it and the the handkerchief kind of comes down in slow motion and lands lands back on him well here it doesn't work so well for whatever reason but he is able to learn that he's got a new adaptive skill yeah you just have to put one little thing in between the person in his uh, pun- his uh, punch and the person he's hitting, and then it will work like you read about. Uh, it, it's quite a. It's not been telegraphed. That's why it's so uh, amusing and hilarious. That oh, that's how it works now. That he finds out uh, through practical uh, through practical means. Uh, I, I don't know what the, how it translates in Chinese, but uh, yeah, the English subtitles of kung fu of in between or kung fu in between, which I thought was yeah. That's what it is. I mean, what else are you going to call it? No, like, poetic name. Just call it, in like, a, a, a name it uh, in a literal sense. Uh, that works for me, man. I think also we should probably make mention that by this point we've been reintroduced to Mantat, but he's in a slightly different role now. He's not in the Uncle Tat role. He's now uh, in the role of Chao Tai Fuk, which is his uh, grandfather, basically, which is... His uncle Tat's father, also, um, so it gets a little bit confusing. But it's an interesting little stretch because he play he's able to play this role uh, in a somewhat effeminate manner. He's not uh, homosexual, but he just is very effeminate, and uh, it's a nice little bit of a stretch, I think, to allow him some variation. I, I'm sure that Mantat was probably getting a little bit tired of the, the the typical straight man role that he'd had in in the prior films. So this. Gave him a little bit of flexibility. A little bit of a cultural note, too. They alluded to this a little bit in the subtitles, but people may not, outside of Hong Kong, may not be aware. Uh, Chow Tai Fuk is the name of one of the top uh, jewelry companies here in Hong Kong. I bet I've heard that name somewhere from a movie or something that maybe, where they rob that jewelry company or something. Could be, yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's a very, it's one of the, like, the two top uh, uh, named jewelry companies. There's uh, Chow Sang Sang and then Chow Tai Fuk. Uh, they're, they're just everywhere here. Um, so yeah, it's it's his name is, and that's why you see uh, some discussion about uh, how come he's not, you know, he's not really rich. He just has the name, but he's not really associated with uh, the ownership of, of that particular company. So so it's for once like a slightly more thought out Wong Jing joke, because sometimes he just puts stuff in there that's from reality, but there's no joke there. It's just Look, I mentioned something. But but the biggest, I guess, uh, 
cultural reference here um, is the fact that, um, and I'm not familiar with the Bund, uh, to be honest. I only know that Chai, in fact, became a huge star starring in uh, the two uh, Bund series. But uh, Ray Loy turns up as his character from the Bund uh, called Dinglick. Are you familiar at all with the Bund or only? I, I know a little bit about it. I haven't actually seen it. It's very hard to, to get a hold. I, they had a re-release of it in uh, 2009, but I don't think the re-release was uh, English subtitled. And uh, I've since tried to track down that re-release, and nobody has it. It's just uh, I've looked on many, many sources, and uh, I haven't. I don't know if it's like up on any video platform sites uh, episodically, but it is considered a cultural staple uh, for TVB dramas. It was one thing that sort of gave a lot of fame to Chow Yun Fat when he was very young. Uh, some people refer to it as basically the Godfather series for Hong Kong entertainment. So they, they give it that much weight. And the theme song from that is very, very popular. Um, you hear it played here in the movie when uh, Ray Loy's character shows up and he is reprising his role as uh, the character from that series. He's playing the same role. The So the theme song is uh, sung by uh, a lady at the time, uh, Francis Yip, who sang the original, you've heard this song in lots of movies if you've watched Hong Kong movies because they, they often, uh, you know, will play a riff from it and um, other people have sung it. Andy Lau's done a cover. Pretty much anybody who's, you know, done an album has done a cover. The lyrics were written by uh, Wong Jim, right? So those of you who know him from some of his other famous songs and and. Or some of his more lecherous, uh, oh, yeah. you know, movie <laughs> roles. Um, so yeah, you know, it's 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 considered a prominent piece of culture for Hong Kong uh, entertainment. That, that that film too is, or the series has been remade a couple times. Um, there's a more recent series with uh, in, done in the mainland called I think it's called the Shanghai Bund with Huang Xiaomeng. It's all it's got got like a new mainland cast. There was a movie version uh, done by Andy Lau and Leslie Chung called Shanghai Grand in 1996. And uh, in that one, Andy Lau is playing the Ding Lik character, if I remember, uh, here. And uh, Leslie was the Chow Yun-Fat role. It's a pretty strong reference that most people locally immediately associ- are, you know, are associated with recognizing Ray Lui. I think I know that when I first saw this, uh, I was in the States, I had no idea what the Bund was. A lot of this was kind of lost on me. I mean, I recognized some of the symbolism and and some of the themes because having seen period gangster films by this point, you you see a lot of things. But you know, a lot of the period gangster films I'd seen had been inspired originally by the Bun. So um, I've since been able to see clips and things, uh, but I haven't unfortunately been able to watch the uh, entire series as a whole yet. But the interesting thing here too is, uh, and, and to make one minor correction, uh, Chow Yun-Fat was only in the first series. Right. Okay. Um, I believe there's three series in total, um, and Ray Loy is in all of them, but Chow Yun-Fat has a very unfortunate occurrence <laughs> at the end of the first series. Um, so, spoiler, even though this is like a 1980 show, um, yeah, he dies at the end of the series, his character and so one of the things that's going on here is when Singh comes into town and he gets embroiled in this gang fight between guys in black and guys in red, well, they identify the leader of the guys in red, this character named Tiger Loy, as the killer of the Chow Yun-Fat character named Hui Man Kung. You know, I almost, in my gut, I almost thought, like, 
maybe that is referencing giant fat without even looking it up. So my, my gut instinct for once was quite good. Yeah, you were you were you were spot on. And so yeah, this this is a and Stephen Stephen Chow basically gets revenge for Chow Yun Fat, who also plays his master coach on. So it's a very <laughs> kind of you know. My brain is already melting, <laughs> but uh, I, I got you, I got you. He's also messing up the timeline, obviously, but I, I'm not here to debate, like, time travel logic, because you, you can break apart time travel movies, and, uh, you know, you just go with it. Uh, it's not like when Stephen Chow comes back to modern times that to make a Back to the Future reference that, a, like, a, a mountain or a ravine has been renamed to something uh, something in popular culture that he used in 1937, you know, the Eastwood Ravine in Back to the Future 3 and what have you. So it, it, it's one of those things, like, I never get bothered by those time travel logic because uh, to also to be honest paul i'm pretty stupid so i i, I can't even like untangle it anyway back to the montage stephen chow banter here it's quite different because now stephen chow has to kind of carry their dual relationship because montat is is also a very timid character and not this loud mouth who can dominate the room like uncle tat can whether he's he brings yeah. something to the room or not. Uh, and it, it has to be said, Uncle Tad has actually gone back in time, but uh, it's uh, kept uh, in, uh, is kept in, not in prison, but it's kept away by the uh, villains of the piece. So he's, uh, he's actually there, but rarely meets his, his father in, uh, in the movie. They, they keep it to a key moment later in the film. And I do, I do want to give a little bit of credit because there's a scene uh, very shortly after this. You know, where Stephen Chow is trying to convince people that he's from the future, you know, and he's like trying to convince uh, Deng Lik. Uh, he's like, well, here, I got this phone. He's like, all right, make the phone work. Make somebody talk. And he can't do it, you know, and, and he's desperate to try and tell people he's from the future and he just wants to get back there. But there's a scene a little bit later where um, there he's with his grandfather, uh, Mantat, in the bedroom. And he's basically saying, you know, I've told you this and I but I can't give you any proof. And you know, do you believe me? And he says, yeah, I believe you. And, and he's like, why do you believe me? And I have nothing I've said is, you know, added up so far. And he basically says, I don't know. I just look at you and I feel happy. And, and, you know, they they have kind of have this family moment that I thought was, I was really touched by that. I don't know why. I mean, it's not something I was expecting, you know, because normally Stephen Chow is, and, and Mantat traditionally their relationship is, is somewhat passive aggressive, right? I mean, yeah. it's, it's, um, <laughs> they're constantly kind of digging at each other. And for me, that moment was a very nice kind of oasis uh, in, you know, what had been this desert of back and forth for a long time. And so for them to have to take the time to do that, because it was it was not something they really needed to do, I think, um, in, in terms of pushing those characters forward. But it was nice that they did that. Absolutely. Absolutely agree. The, the the thing is that it, it is funny, it's entertaining, but it seems like it's quite sparse on loves after like the first third, maybe. Uh, I mean, you, you you got stuff like Stephen Chow being shocked to the core that Gong Li's character is marrying Ray Lois uh, Dinglick, and he just becomes not comatose, but he, he just uh, freezes in his place, and they can't make him snap out of his uh, stupid smile. And uh, they don't know why it's uh, all of a sudden uh, in this uh, stasis, <laughs> which, le- which leads to a wonderful little sight gag that they obviously need all- to dress him too because he-, he doesn't do anything. So they, you see him in the scene after he freezes up in his um, pajamas and his uh, little little uh, 
pajama hat, if you will. <laughs> and he, he, he sits by this little fountain and they're talking in the foreground about him. And he falls into the fountain. Yeah, and it's done in the background. And I just, when I see that, because I've seen that before, but I forget about it. And every time I saw it, when I watched this, I just started laughing out loud because it's just such a, you know, it's one of those things where he's in the background and the character's in the foreground talking and you just kind of see the movement. It's not even in focus, but it's just funny the way it happens. He's not going to react to that. Maybe he could drown doing that because he's not going <laughs> to, oh my God, what happened? That he's absolutely frozen in that way. I don't know if it was the what they call the powerful awakening pill that snapped him out of it. But there is a, a great gag where they need him to snap out of it. So they give him this powerful awakening pill, as they call it. They give it to him and he just wakes up without no, no reaction. Like, hey, what's going on? Rather than like, it's not like they give him um, something to sniff that will make him like shoot up like a rocket. It's just, what's going on? Which is low-key Stephen Chow that I absolutely love, where it's not like, or him sticking his tongue out or anything like that. It's just very, hey. Yeah, but then it like wears off instantaneously, too. He's back, <laughs> back, in the, back in his comatose state. But, but I think the humor wakes up again once the gambling does. Again, this is a God of Gamblers movie, and there's like two gambling scenes here. It, it's not like I demand it or anything, but it is called God of Gamblers. There's going to be something at some point. And the humor wakes up because I think I love to see Stephen Chow play the confident sing. And now, he, every gambling he gets, you know, is more powerful and more powerful and a little bit more confident each time. And it shows here in the very, in the two gambling scenes, which I very much enjoy seeing Chow play. And I don't really have any notes as such on it. It's just a nice switch into the white-clad sing character that is... Uh, assuring and uh, comfortable to see, I suppose. Um, that's um, a through line. But another through line, by the way, is that, okay, they didn't get Chala Chung per se. All right. I'm going to keep that that. But they keep the Yi Mong through line going ever so slightly. <laughs> Yi Mong was the character name of uh, Chala Chung in uh, All for the Winner. And they named Gong Li's mentally challenged character Yi Mong. So I, I don't know. I mean, it's it's funny to see, in a way, to see uh, because Stephen Chow thinks this isn't a different character. He thinks like he's got a thing going now with Gong Li's character. She's cute. She doesn't say much, but she's cute, I suppose. But she is literally just like a child, and uh, so they name her Yi Mong. Funny to see the wooing between the two and him having a good time. I don't know if that was the smoothest decision of, let's say, Wong Jing to name Gong Li Yi Mong. I don't think it was necessary, to be honest, to even have a Yi Mong through line, to be honest. But uh, what's your take on that? Her her name, if I remember correctly, is actually uh, a slight variation. It's Yu Mong. The, the, the sound's a little bit different. Um, if we were to spell it, spell it, romanize it out, um, it's Y Yu Mong. But the, the, the Mong character in Chinese represents dream, you know, so and this is the this is the same as as the Mong character for Yi Mong, and the, so this is like the dream girl ideal, which um, is sort of carried through across the films. You know, the idea that she's mentally challenged and and that she's very childlike is is interesting because I remember when you were talking about the first film, um, and the characterization of Singh and how you thought he was very much like a child in some of his reactions and responses. And so we kind of see that that kind of interesting matchup here. But Singh then later kind of rejects her. 
and he's it's like he's much more mature and he wants a more mature woman even though most of the time he's still you know being silly and kind of being that kid-like character from the first film she doesn't work as well for me as i've already as i've already mentioned uh in in the roles here and i didn't feel a great deal of chemistry between them and a lot of the time the whole you know back and forth that they try and do with these two sisters and they there's confusion and a lot of that just didn't it didn't make a lot of sense to me you know why they just didn't come out right away and say oh no you you you're totally you know not seeing Yusan you're totally it, it's 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 her sister her identical twin sister you know you think in these movies that have people who are identical twins that anytime there's the slightest bit of confusion they would say oh well you know there's a twin are we missing something here you know is, is, is something funny going on um, but that never seems to happen. So they do, and this gets back to a little bit of the length of the film. They spend a little bit too much time on this love quadrangle, I guess, uh, between the two Gong Li characters, the Ray Lloyd character, and Steven's character. But uh, I bet Charla Chung was thankful, very thankful, for the fact that they're essentially taking the idea of her character and making her into a mentally challenged girl. Thank you, Wong Jing, for that. Like, I'm willing to appear in your movies, but come on. <laughs> they they don't spend any time on the fact that Stephen Chow is messing up the timeline or anything. He he obviously says to his uh, his uh, not his uncle Tat but the Mantat character Chow Tai Fok that um, you know McDonald's get rich selling buns. Maybe you should try selling buns, which leads into the maybe the most recognizable cultural reference for Westerners because what is done here in the whole McDonald's section? They open up a McDonald's like. Uh, fast food place is that they they have a song and dance number as Paul alluded to and you know a little bit more about the song and dance number but I I know what the opening of it reference references and it's the they recreate essentially the opening from the Michael Jackson video Smooth Criminal with the coin being thrown across the room and into the jukebox so I saw that video on a loop when I was a kid. My sister loved Michael Jackson, and that was obviously the time of MTV and things like that. So that video ran all the time. It's Smooth Criminal that it's referencing first, but I recognize the song they're singing, but I have no idea really what the cultural reference is for Chinese uh, audiences. And you ha have a little bit more idea of that. So uh, why don't you explain? I don't know a lot about the origination of the song or if that's the original song and because I've heard similar themes based on that. So um, there may be a listener out there who has a, a much better understanding being, you know, a song per person because I'm, I'm definitely not a song person. But it, it does basically the lyrics of the song are just talking about every kind of bow or every kind of bun that you can buy. And bun shops are very, very popular over here. Um, you know, these little mom and pop bakeries and they have uh cha siu bao, which is, you know, sort of like a, uh, a, a pork, uh, barbecue pork bun. They've got uh, custard buns, um, you know, sweet coconut buns, all kinds of buns. And basically the song is just them singing, uh, you know, the time, the name of every successive kind of bun that you can get. It, it's pretty extensive. And if you're somebody who knows the, 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 the varieties of buns, I guess it's kind of funny. Um, in that context. And um, I again, I don't know if that was a, a song that is um, original for the film or if that's an actual 
you know, song from the Shanghai period that they just adapted. I recognize the melody from somewhere, though. So, but yeah. uh, I can't, I can't place it uh, firmly. But uh, it's actually quite a clever way to recreate the opening to Smooth Criminal. Actually, I thought that that was well, well done. And not again this Wong Jing reference where he just like mentions a thing and think that's clever, clever satire or clever culture, a clever cultural reference. Um, because it is a stylistically, you know, fantastic video, whether you like Michael Jackson or not. I think it's, uh, everyone can agree that that gangster noir style video for Smooth Criminal is, is quite something in creative. Um, you know, it, it's, it stalls the movie, really, if you look at it, uh, and the movie could have been tight, uh, but it, it's fair, it is quite easy to get through, but it's this whole gangster slash, ga- uh, um, gambling slash gangster story is not really built for two hours. Uh, as I said, it's easy to get through, but it's not, because it's not like wall to wall laughs either. It does get kind of difficult to get through, and, uh, Despite it being a time travel gambling comedy, and we get both of them towards the end, obviously, uh, both a final gambling game, and uh, Stephen Chow traveling back to the present and all of that, but it's it's fine. Uh, certainly, when we reach the gambling table, I think uh, the ending has no problem, you know, getting us through it and and all of that. And uh, it certainly shows that Wong Jing has a cinematographer of note working here. And shooting the final uh, gambling session, it's uh, the the whole table is lit uh, in a way where the camera picks up a glow from it, so it looks very elegant and uh, suitable for the period. And uh, it's a it's a nice you know feather in the cap for for the production that it's a silly movie that also looks elegant at points, uh, which is um, something I enjoy. Well, one thing one one thing back to the to the whole McDonald folk uh, song and dance number. They never really, by the film's end, take any of that by extension to the level that, like, Back to the Future did, right? Exactly. Um, and, and so it kind of makes it seem a little bit um, not necessary because they don't... There's no, there's no follow-up gag when, you know, Singh does kind of return uh, to the present day, which you would kind of expect. Uh, they go for another gag, which which we'll talk about, which is fine, but um, without that kind of follow up, it's like, well, why you know go to all that trouble? Okay, they they want to parody Smooth Criminal, and then they want to make fun of McDonald's, and and all that's fine. But by extension, what you've done here should have some relevance, uh, you know, in the future. And conversely, they do do something once he's back to the the present that I'll that I'll mention in in a moment that makes me scratch my head even even till now. Um, but I'll talk about that in a moment. So yeah, we get back to the gambling side of things, and I, I do want to make mention a special note of the character actress Wong Wan Si, who I think is she plays basically the the villain here. She's like a Japanese military officer or something. Uh, they they list her on the Hong Kong movie database as a Japanese VIP, and so she's like funding. Uh, you know, one one of the rival bad guys, basically, and she's coming in to challenge Ray Loy's character, and then Singh is going to try and, uh, you know, defend him from, you know, so she doesn't basically bankrupt his casino. And I I've always liked her in films. Um, you know, very often she's put into these ugly girl roles, but I think she's got some really good acting chops and 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 sometimes I think that uh, you know she 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 does a lot with very very little. Here she's given this this chance to kind of be you know comedic and and have fun, a little bit of fun 
with the idea of the super big bad that we often get in these films. And I, I really like the way that they play with this here where she's kind of totally inept. So there's a scene where when she's first introduced, she's like flying and flipping and doing all these Kung Fu moves all throughout the casino to make her grand entrance. And then people are like, wow, you know, they're all like in awe of her. And then she's actually got a stunt double guy yes. who was doing it. And he kind of can't hold on. He falls down from the <laughs> ceiling and totally spoils her. And, you know, I think that the way she just kind of plays that and plays this role as this this person who's trying to be a big bad but really isn't, I think, is is just spot on for me. Uh, I really like that kind of humor, and I think she pulls it off amazingly well here. And so, yeah, then then they bring in this other character, too, and I want to get his name right, uh, Declan Michael Wong. Ooh, yeah, and it's part of the Wong family. He's the brother, brother of Michael Wong and Russell Wong. <laughs> so uh, he's playing the French god of gamblers here named Pierre Cachon. Here, too, also, there's this kind of like uh, dual timeline gag going on where at one point Stephen Chow is, I guess, reading the the memoirs of this guy and said, oh, I really admire him. And, you know, he the, the, he was only defeated by this this one person later on, you know, or in, in his career. And then, of course, uh, you know, Stephen, Phil, Stephen ends up going back in time to sort of fulfill this prophecy. I don't know. I, I think for me, by this point, though, the gambling had lost its luster a little bit, I want to say. They they tried to be innovative. So, you know, early on, they're doing uh, the the big and small dice game. And uh, we'd kind of already seen variations on that starting right off the bat with the first film, with the heavy and light tumbler, you know, with uh, Chayun Fat and the um, Yakuza uh, girl. And so here they're, they're, you know, trying to be creative and to vary it up again. Um, this game is, you know, done slightly differently with three dice instead of five dice. So, you know, because they can see, they have the supernatural ability, they can see through the things, um, they find a creative way to still still kind of play it off. But I don't know, it, maybe because of the timing, but by the end I was not as... Um, captivated with the, the gambling at this point and really because they're going all in again they're taking the things to extreme you know so you've got both these supernatural powered characters and they're like basically you know rubbing these cards to death it's it's almost like they're making fun of the the whole concept that they started with because again we go back to the first the, the the first all for the winter film and when the same character would rub he'd like you know he'd do it for 30 seconds and he'd be sweating and he'd be exhausted by the end. And, you know, so here both characters are just like, you know, back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. So And 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 one card transforms into Maggie Chung for no apparent reason whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. Other than Wong Jing possibly having a, uh, being immature. Well, she, 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 she was a Jing girl. So, and I guess perhaps by that time she was moving on to uh, bigger and better things and maybe... I, who knows what had happened between them? We we know Wong Jing can carry a little bit of a grudge and put it in movies. We we know that. I mean, hello, high risk. <laughs> there you go. But hey, it's, uh, it's not like I, I don't think he transforms the card into Maggie Chung and says, "Oh my God, what a beauty!" Is rather like, "Oh my God, that's not good. <laughs> that's not good at all." 
Sure. Let's transform it into something else. But then, then I, I agree, kind of, because it's it, it's comforting to see a sequence like like this, but it's far removed from the removed from the alluring nature, as you said, of the gambling finale, which Wong Jing did so well in the first movie. It's I mean, how many times can you reinvent the wheel? Yeah, but it, it's not um, that tense nature and uh, even exhilarating nature to it that was, for instance, God of Gamblers. So. Uh, they're not bringing it to another level. Is uh, is my point here? Yeah, and 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 I like that comment that you just made. How many times can you reinvent the wheel? Because I have a very similar comment when we get to the next film. Um, uh, in in some of the gambling sequences we get there, um, that just kind of stood out to me by this point. And 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 perhaps this is you know because we're sort of in the in the in final days, I guess you might say of the, of this particular gambling series at least in, in terms of the bigness of it right you know they're they're going for broke here in terms of what they can do and to try and you know make it entertaining because we've seen the, the so much of the gambling side uh in the earlier movies fair box office for it though i believe it was a, a around a 30 million hong kong dollar box office take so obviously the allure of stephen chow was not gonna stop anytime soon whether directed by wong jing or not i mean he went on this year. Maybe he'd done one already. The Fight Back to School a trilogy of movies happened, and that was successful. And, and, and a variety of other Wong Jing movies. Again, uh, I've talked about it extensively, so I won't. But uh, Hail the Judge was a Wong Jing movie. I think that did very well. So the run for Stephen Chow was not over, but the God of Gamblers run had done its thing. And I think uh, it's not a waste at all that we got back to Shanghai, but certainly enough was enough. Uh, uh, we'll we'll cap this review for now, uh, or cap this, re- cap this review and move on to the other one after the break. But first, uh, as for availability, may I put out a good remastered version of God of Gambler's Part 3, Back to Shanghai? But as with the other ones, because they're all with Maya, it doesn't seem to be in print currently or stocked anywhere. And uh, nor is the two-disc set that was also released that paired up Back to Shanghai with the prior Stephen Chow, God of Gamblers movie with Andy Lau, which was God of Gamblers 2. They did one of those, a grand collection of God of Gamblers 2 and 3, and a, like a reduced-priced uh, two-DVD set, which was a pretty good deal, but uh, may I, it's, it's easy to just uh, figure out that there's not a whole lot of um, sales for these vintage titles, and it's not warranted to keep repressing them for me always begs the question as to um okay you don't want to if if you're afraid you know the dvd market's not there and you don't want to do another release of these then you know okay fine but we haven't seen any of these on blu-ray and that's a bit disappointing and they're they're not available on streaming services either so it's like it seems to me that if they've got the rights and that that's not an issue that there's money to be made um, especially when we talk about streaming, because you're not talking about the investment into physical physical media anymore. It just seems like you know you put it up, and then okay, maybe you have to do revenue share with a with an Apple or, or with another company. But you're just it, you know it's a button click, and you're taking taking in money. Button click, taking in money. Button click, taking in money. I don't see why anybody, uh, unless there's an issue. With some kind of rights, you know, between the actors, the producers, or the director, or whoever, unless there's some kind of issue impeding that, I really don't understand why they haven't pushed forward in in, in these directions. I, I think it's in general, may isn't this limbo themselves? They're not losing rights left and right. Um... Because the remastered line in general, if you look at their other titles, not just Stephen Chow titles, it's uh, some of them they promised 
and they never came out. Uh, when they first started uh, promoting this remastered line uh, on the back covers and things like that, you always had an image of uh, Johnny Toaster Mission, and that never came out. So, um, yeah. because uh, the prior, uh, the, the sales of the prior line, uh, whether Johnny Toe movies or not, was not enough, and we never got a good looking version of the mission in Hong Kong. And God knows that movie was mistreated in Hong Kong, but was well treated abroad, uh, actually. But uh, that's a story for, an- for another time, I suppose. But uh, we'll take a break uh, and listen to some God of Gambit's free, the early stage ish music. And uh, the second free in the third episode is about to be reviewed. The prequel is about to be reviewed, and we'll talk about that after the break. Welcome back, and the final review of this God of Gamblers retrospective dubbed Gambling Season is God of Gamblers 3, the early stage from 1996. This is the prequel to, to God of Gamblers from 1989, and plot from the Love HK film review of the film. The story picks up in 1986 as Ko Chun, played by Leon Lai, prepares to hit the gambling circuit with his godfather, played by Chung King Fai, and his two gambling partners, played by uh, Jiggy Lung as Hing and Francis Ng plays a character called Ko and then the word N-G-O I can't pronounce. So how do you pronounce that, Paul? Ko? Ko Ngo. And that's why I won't uh, attempt it because that that is complex Chinese uh, if, for me anyway. Uh, however, money is ultimately the devil's candy and Chun is betrayed by those he trusts the most. Luckily, he's taken in by Sister Seven played by, Aine- uh, played by Anita Yun who's been a long-time admirer of Ko Chun. With her help, he prepares to take back what he lost, which is pretty much the same theme as every God of Gamblers film ever made. And the plot from, from Ko, so I, I assume. Uh, my quick opinion, I called it a total failure in my review once, and rewatching it, it isn't quite a total failure in my eyes anymore, but it struggles to make its point to exist at all, really. It's not an interesting prequel, aside from action scenes, and Jordan Chan as Long M uh, is absolutely mind-blowingly awesome. But we, we'll get to that. So, so what's your short opinion of the early stage? Well, it's crap. <laughs> Just put it bluntly. I, I guess if I were to look at this as a gambling film only, it's got some... It's it, it, It's okay. But I think as a film that tries to fit itself into the mythology and in a much more serious way than the film we just talked about. I think that it does some things that uh, just don't work for me. And uh, those are some of the points that, that we'll get into um, a little bit later. I, I don't think there was any interest in terms of... We weren't craving to know of Kochun's backstory, to be honest. But hey, you can create interest and surprise doubters if you make a good film, of course. But when all is said and done, there's no... I didn't gain any like extra like layers and uh, depth here by watching this movie and it's fine the way it is we don't need much background to a cartoon character to be honest uh, the, the funny thing is by the way speaking of leon light he appeared as a god of gamblers-esque character i believe in city hunter wong jing's 
uh, Lunar New Year Jackie Chan action adventure where he like was throwing cards and like killing off characters that way and being quite suave and smooth. But the problem is he was a kid then. I mean, he was, he looked like a 14 year old Leon Lai. And 1996, it did hold a claim for Leon Lai. He appeared in Comrades, almost a love story. It was quite good. But to be honest, the idea of Leon Lai, the actor for me, has always been a shaky idea too. I, he's come through every now and again. Uh, he, he got uh, at least one award for the, um, performance in Peter Chan's short to Going Home. It's great. It's absolutely marvelous. But I never saw any evolving potential in him as an actor, but that's why I throw over to you, because you've still watched a few more recent performances. So, like, any spontaneous thoughts on Leon Lai then versus now, I guess? Yeah, I, I'm not a fan. Uh, I can, uh, you know, say. And perhaps this makes me a bit biased against this film, too, and, and I'm willing to accept that. Uh, aside from Comrades... Uh, I don't think there's any film that I've really felt that he was, you know, truly astounding in. Did you ever see uh, Going Home? It, it was part of the first three, the the free, the free short um, horror the, stories. The horror, yeah, 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 yeah. And and one of the things I remember having some discussion with uh, some folks at the time when that came out. Um, they said that uh, Peter Chan, well, it was Peter Chan, right, who directed yep. that short. Yeah, uh, knows how to use Leon. There are directors who know how to use him and a lot of directors who don't. And that's part of the problem is that he can do certain things very well, uh, but there's a lot that uh, leaves things to be desired for most of his films. And and I guess, you know, maybe I'm not being fully fair. Um, There are probably some other films that I can point to where I've enjoyed him, but perhaps like I'm thinking of like Moonlight in Tokyo. Oh, yeah. But it's not just him, you know, it's him and his, you know, co-star, co-starring role that I think um, kind of, uh, you know, helps him go through. Uh, I like 18 Springs, but not because of him. That's the thing. It's like when I watch 18 Springs, I'm not watching it for Leon. I'm watching it for someone else. Yeah. So it's this kind of thing that I think uh, has perhaps, you know, plagued him, at least for me and for for, I I think I get kind of the same sensibility from you that... uh, you know, he's not a big draw for you. You know, if I hear there's a there's a Leon Lai movie coming, I'm just kind of like, OK, who else is in it? <laughs> That's kind of kind of my. It's a one man show. <laughs> God damn it. You know, it's a singer. Then. Uh, no. Also, no, not not a big fan. Uh, he just, you know, he uh, for me, it's uh, in that in that series. You know, he's part of, of course, the four heavenly kings, but he's not he's not on my radar there. It's Andy and then Jackie. And, and that's pretty much it for me. You know, but again, my tastes, I, I accept that my tastes are my own and that there, he has a big following. There are a lot of people who really like him. Um, I do give him credit because he's not afraid to poke fun uh, at himself. Uh, not a great movie, but uh, his his uh, surprise appearance in the movie Frozen in 2010, not the Disney Frozen. That would be amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the two. <laughs> The 2010 movie Frozen. Uh, he, pay, he 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 pokes a little bit of fun, and uh, you know, so I give him some credit for that. I also get the impression he's not a very very frequent actor anymore, anyway. No, I mean he's done uh, you know he's done a couple films films here and there. Frozen, uh, it was sort of more of a cameo role, um, uh, and not really, you know, not really uh, his his movie. What was the Beard movie again with Dante Lamb? Fire of Conscience was that it? We had that uh, that that beard that uh, no one likes. I think so. Is that the one with Richie Wren? 
you know, and it, of course, he had a turn in Infernal Affairs 3, the city comedy, which I really wanted to like, uh, Leaving Me Loving You, Seven Swords, small part in, 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 in Seven Swords. Yeah, uh, Empress and the Warriors. Uh, no, <laughs> I mean, uh, Bodyguards and Assassins, I guess, you know, he had a part there. I think that's probably a movie that uh, people would look at and, you know, perhaps think a bit more highly of. Um more recently, White Vengeance, uh, it was a film I haven't seen, but uh, I know some people have seen it said it was okay. I, I, I know that he works a lot in in the musical side trying to help promote people in the stable that he's in. So, for example, he did a, a film called uh, A Melody Looking back in 2006, which was w- one of these things that um, it's not like a theatrically released movie. It's more like a Saturday night movie of the week kind of a thing you know he's like highlighting at the time it was with the chapman toe and um uh jill and janice two sort of up-and-coming musical um entertainers who are in the the music group that he belongs to and um i think he directed that and he also uh did the script for that so you know he's he's made some push to try and get on to the other side of the camera but not uh, not a whole lot. That didn't make me like him anymore. But hey, it's like if you want to push new talent, that that's an excellent thing. So, uh, uh, but I don't hate him or anything. It's just very bland to me personally. But uh, anyway, back to the other stage. Uh, as with back to Shanghai, uh, Wong Jing clearly wants a stylish look here. So back to Shanghai had Peter Pao. This one has another kind of cinematographer royalty. Arthur Wong shot this movie, and uh, it it looks like it every now and again. It's a uh, very slick looking uh sometimes style that is quite uh silly you know t- tilted angles for no apparent reason in like uh drama scenes and things like that it, it don't doesn't do much for me but it looks good overall and off one can make movies look pretty dynamite uh, and, and here is also largely not not fully the fairly rare side of Wong Jing where he wants to be the serious artist uh, like a more artistic more serious and uh, without as much gambling hijinks, you know, we get them as soon as uh, Anita Yun and uh, Chung Tat Ming enters the frame. But partly it's uh, more of a movie where Wong Jing wants to be taken seriously. The problem is it doesn't work because we don't care about this backstory to Ko Chun here. But uh, at least he like puts darkness onto the screen in the 1969 flashback where these sadistic gangsters are willing to cut kids into pieces because they're just that bad at least it's not a mild pc world or anything which uh, is a nice setup but it doesn't like run through the movie it doesn't have this violent gory sadistic streak that could have been noticeable at least uh, but, but it all is part of uh, setting up the fact that Kochun meets seven at, at, as he uh, when he's a kid he also uh is in the same vicinity as the Long Um character that Jordan Chan plays later in the movie, uh, su- subtitled as Lone, mm, as in Lone Loner <laughs> or, or Alone. Uh, so, so there's no like they, they have the Jade Ring, obviously. And eventually, that's gonna switch from her to him. Knowing that it ends up as Kochun's kind of trademark uh, gambling uh, technique or his little tick when he's gambling, who cares? It's not It's not an element, and there's tons of elements that doesn't add to 1989's God of Gamblers at all, really. It's just standard, forgettable. I mean, if you focus, as you said, 
on it as a gambling movie. It's standard forgettable stuff, but because it wants to matter as the prequel to God of Gamblers, it's even more forgettable because there's nothing here to care for. There's nothing here to be blown away, touched by, and there's no extra depthful layers added to universe. Uh, so I, I guess that's my big big first slam of, of it all. <laughs> so what's your spontaneous next thoughts, I guess? You know, it. okay, so the interesting thing here uh, is that we have both God of Gambler 3 movies and both are kind of back in time, right? Both are happening, uh, in a sense, before the events that made the made the series famous. This is a, such a retcon for me because I, although I know we don't get a lot of deep uh, narrative understanding of the relationship between Ko Chun and Long Mum's character, I very clearly got the sense from the first movie that these two people did not have this extensive background together. Exactly. Here's a problem, people. <laughs> Either Wong Jing is very stupid or he aimed to reboot it all without caring that much about the events that took place in 1989 in the story and the God of Gambles movie. Because you're right, they meet for the, they definitely meet for the first time. They they shake hands in the in God of Gamblers, and he comments on his tattoo and that he was in Vietnam, and and that's a new meeting. It obviously is, but they know each other based on this movie. They they met three years earlier. I mean, I mean, I mean, what's your take on that? Can he be that stupid, or was Wong Jing trying to reboot things here? It might just be a case that he thought that you know the audience won't care. I, I think by this point. You know, Chow Yun-fat had moved over to Hollywood. It didn't look like he would be returning to Hong Kong cinema uh, anytime soon. We were a year away from the handover. People, you know, didn't have any idea, any clue what thing, things were going to go on once that happened. Um, so big brain drain going on throughout the city, including lots of talent. Long Jing, of course, deciding to stay and remain um, and credit to him, as we talked about, for, 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 for doing that. But the idea here is what, you know, that's an interesting question. Was he looking to sort of use this as a reboot? I don't think so, because based on the title, he's keeping it in the series, right? So it's it's a three. If it had been simply God of Gamblers, the early stage without the three, then I would say, all right, yeah, he's looking to do a reboot, and we're going to get, um, you know, uh, basically... Uh, a reboot of the story, the relationships, the motivations, and everything, and then we'll get another one where we've got Leon as you know a more mature coach on later, and that would have been fine. That would have been great, but I don't think that that's what he had intended here. Right? I think may- maybe initially he was thinking about that, but at the end he slapped on the number three label, keeping it within the the, the context of the original, and and even featuring footage from the original uh, at the end with Chine Fat. So, but by that point, there's no doubt that. We are connecting here, um, but but the, yeah, even me, who's pretty damn stupid, as I said, like hey 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 hey, like is there gonna be an amnesia thing here in the middle of the movie? So he actually did forget that he met him three years earlier, the long mm, character. But no, there is not. They definitely met, and they even uh, they even uh, walk out together. Like the ending frame is them walking out together. So they are gonna have a gambling master and bodyguard relationship up to that point so that's a huge thing the funny thing is that jordan chan is amazing as long um absolutely amazing i i love jordan chan as an actor anyway but he owns this role like you read about not like echoing charles Hume's act or anything but he is this quiet but capable fighter 
and loyal fighter as long as he gets paid in food initially he's fine if he gets 10 bowls of something he kills 10 people that's good he is a he was born to play this role and as an action performer jordan chan is it looks like a breakthrough role this because he works amazingly well with uh, dion lam and uh, mayuk singh's excellent uh, action team and their action choreography and i was uh, so impressed back then and i'm so impressed still what Jordan Chan does here in in the rather vicious action side to the movie. It gets quite violent and gory at points, but he is a scene stealer and is way too good. He does way too good work in actuality, but good on him for just like snapping so believably into the action role here. It's it's absolutely mind blowing, mind blowing to me how how well he looks here, Jordan Chan. Yeah, I you know this was a pretty big year for him, 1996, um, with the Young and Dangerous series kind of starting off, you know, early on, and then uh, going through going throughout the year. I guess they had like three of the films in that same year were released in '96: one, one, two, and three, propelling him and Eakin and, and some of the other you know up and comers at this time um, into the public eye with those gangster roles. So here, this film coming out uh, late in the year, um, you know, he's already kind of uh, shown that he's uh, got some charisma, and uh, but he's doing something very different. The character here is very different from his uh, the, the gangster character that he plays, um, uh, Chicken, in that series, right? Uh, I agree. I think that this is really his film. Maybe I'm being too hard on the film when I call it crap. The reason I call it crap is, again, because uh, for me... This whole retcon situation just overshadows so much of the film. As a, if this would have been a standard gangster, uh, not gangster, standard gambling film with no connection, I think I'd probably like it a lot more. But because they're trying to make these connections with that just don't work narratively for me, uh, I have a hard time suspending my disbelief, which is weird because, again, we just got done talking about the comic book silliness of you know back to shanghai and i'm okay with that i'm okay with saying all right they're going to time travel and still this is connecting to you know chow yun fat and the foot massaging and all that kind of stuff and here the fact that they're trying to play this as a serious film i think and makes me much harder on it in 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 the long run i don't know that maybe that sounds a bit weird i absolutely agree i mean that's why i'm critical to certain move against certain moves because they're clearly trying to they want to matter as dramatic pieces and serious pieces rather than being these strung together Hong Kong movies that have amazing action and then cut to amazingly annoying comedy and uh, all of these different moods that still makes a charming experience because they're not trying to uh, be artistic and serious here. They just want to, they want to create a good time uh, despite it also being a dark, violent time and wacky time. Here it's um, it's partly that, but with the whole Anita Yun and Chung Tat Ming representing uh, the comedy side to it, it's still you you feel after all is said and done that it wanted to matter as a drama first and foremost. And Wong Jing just to make sure to not alienate audiences or something like that will make it a little bit silly too. Yeah, not overly like romancing star silly or something like that, where people go on and try to go on go go on whoring adventures and uh, and hit on girls all the time. It's it's not really that, especially the way it's shot too. It's very um, gloomy uh, in a way it's shot too, so it's not very bright and colorful. I, I do uh, probably want to make some mention because uh, initially in the film we're kind of going way back when uh, Ko Chan is just a young boy, and um, we see. 
um, a couple of things. So, so Bonnie Wong shows up as uh, his uh, auntie for, and I guess it's her jewelry at first you know, that she's like initially trying to uh, play in a in some kind of gambling game with uh, Elvis Tsui that. Uh, one of the, I guess the ring is in that batch of things that she's gambling, which then eventually gets carried over to Anita Yun and then by proxy back to him. That that little bit I think is interesting. Um, the the kid too, uh, named a uh, young actor named Cheng Yudeng, who plays the young Ko Chun. We see him in a couple other films of significance that you've talked that I know you've talked about at least on one other show. Uh, Yesterday you, yesterday me. He had a role in that. And he also plays the young Cloud or the young Aaron Kwok in Storm Riders. So uh, in the opening scene, when you see, uh, you know, that he see, he watches his uh, dad get kind of murdered there, and he's got that kind of glare. Uh, same same kid actor here, and he's pretty good. He didn't go on to do much more beyond that, but um, uh, just kind of worth pointing out that this opening scene, um, you know, he's he he's uh, somebody who was kind of like a go to kid during this era. And of course, it's always great to see Elvis Soy, though I'm kind of disappointed in in what happens to him later, because when I see Elvis Soy on screen and I see a fight break out, I expect to see Elvis Soy kicking butt and taking names. And we don't really get that in this film. And he kind of has some unfortunate things happen to him. But and the, I guess the the main thing here is the Anita Yun, Jordan Chan relationship. And of course, Anita Yun is the love interest for uh, Ko Chun's character, and that develops over time. But really, I, I had a problem with her in this film because she just seemed to be doing the Anita Yun shtick for this era, basically doing the same character that we saw in some other films. Um, you know, primarily the one she did with Jordan Chan. Um, he's a woman, she's a man. Yeah. You know, sort of that 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 perky, funny, a little time, a little bit at the time, sassy character, you know, cheerleading in the, you know, in, in the gambling hall, this kind oh, of stuff. That was unbearable. <laughs> it just, it didn't, it didn't, I mean, I like her. I like her a lot and I loved He's a Woman, She's a Man and the sequel. I just didn't, it didn't feel like she belonged here. You know, I mean, think about the establishments of the character. Ko Chun, his, you know, in the first film, he's with Charlotte Chung. In part two, he's with another Charlotte Chung. How do we get from from those characters as as she was playing them from this character? You know, it's a, the Sister Seven character. Just I just don't see the connection there. It's uh, the, uh, it's no fun like dramatic through line due to the fact that they all die. Like yeah. all the women he encounter dies, you know, there, there, there's nothing there. Like there's no added depth there as such either. It's just something that happens in Wong Jing's script, and we don't really. I mean, we care more for Charlotte Jung's character if anything, especially in the first one, and in the second one, she's kind of in and out of it quickly, as is her kid. <laughs> uh, but uh, <laughs> it's, I, I agree. I mean, I like Anita Yun a lot. She's she can be very funny. Uh, she's an excellent dramatic actress, obviously. Salavi uh, Moncheri. Very good. Uh, a very positive, upbeat character in that movie, too. And and some very similar beats, you know. I mean, again, the, being in the hospital, in the bed, you know, some of the cinematography, I'm just looking at her lying in the bed and going, oh, this is Sailor Viamonchiri all over again. Come on. Can't we get beyond <laughs> this? Can't we get 
you know, something different for this movie. Yeah, exactly. The, the whole, ter- ter- it, it's not terminal disease here as such, but uh, yeah, it's a cliche, certainly. And uh, so so I, I agree. I, I like her when used well comedically. Here she's not. She's just, you, you described it perfectly, just doing her shtick. And that that's not at all appealing, actually. Uh, again, with her supporting Kochun, and when he walks by, her and uh, Chung Tat Ming are like literally having these uh, pom-poms, I think they're called. And like, Ko Chun Go, la 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 la. And that's not funny. That's stupid. And not good stupid. Not good Wong Jing stupid. It's just, w- which movie are you trying to do here? Are you trying to do the silly God of Gamblers or trying to do the serious God of Gamblers? And I love multi-mood experiences in Hong Kong movies. Doesn't work here. If I cared when she, when, when she lost her life in this movie, uh-uh. Not at all. Speaking of uh, silly, Francis Zoom looks dumb. <laughs> he gets quite a, um, quite a wig job <laughs> done to him here. A wig that seems like it's, should, should have been cut a little bit because it almost conceals his entire face. And it looks stupid. It doesn't look very, um, intimidating. Francis Zoom can be very intimidating and it's kind of his breakout year as a character actor. Again, he was in Young and Dangerous, the first one. And then the, the satire, Once Upon a Time in Tribe Society, Full Alert the next year, can be so funny, so vicious, so great. Like this fantastic character actor. But here, it's he's not feeling the inspiration. I think uh, it's uh, as the opponent, the main opponent, when all is said and done, of uh, Kochun. He becomes the god of gamblers in the middle of the movie, and Kochun wants that title and uh, all, all of that nonsense. Uh, and despite everyone appearing in sync sound and what have you, which is a great professional trait for a movie, it's a shame when the great character actors can't respond. They're, they're, they're kind of feeling that there's nothing here. And it's the only one who feels it, I suppose, is Jordan Chan. But um, I don't know. I, I love Francis and I love his uh, breakout. This is not part of the breakout. It's definitely one of the forgettable ones. So. And if we can, I mean, his, his hair aside, which was... Uh which was very, very ridiculous. But looking at the art direction of the film itself, too, uh, this is another problem I have with this film, is that we know the time setting of God of Gamblers is, you know, set in the late 80s period, and it has that look, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, Of course, by the end, everybody's in tuxedos, but, you know, you've got Andy Lau, you know, sporting kind of jean jackets of the time, and, you know, later when they meet other characters. It's very indicative of that time period in Hong Kong. This film doesn't look like an early 80s or 70s movie, right? That's when it should be set, according, you know, timeline. But everybody's kind of wearing the 90s skinny ties and and everything has a very 90s look to it. So the art, from the art direction sense, it doesn't feel like a true prequel to, you know, they're, they're not taking it to that level in terms of set dressing or design or, or any of that kind of stuff. No, it it feels like a 1996 movie. Even the look of it, like the, the the cinematography looks so modern that it changes eras even in that look almost. Uh, to be honest, I didn't really think about that mainly because I didn't really care about the movie as much. But you're absolutely correct. You know, it sets up it sets up all the plot and all of that sufficiently. You know, but it's never on the brink of a great like, oh my god, this prequel is gonna add so much story depth. It never go never goes there. Occasionally, it is funny. Uh, if I transition really quickly to comedy, there is a great little dialogue exchange 
with um, Cheng Tat Ming and Ita Yun. I think Jordan Chan is there. They're gonna go to one of the big, uh, the mid movie uh, gambling uh, gambling competition, and it's said that Cheng Tat Ming knows someone called Stanley Ho, who has set them up at a hotel and first row seats. But the thing is, that is possibly a real life character, like this person who owns many hotels. But the Stanley Ho in the movie is this uh, poor fish vendor that yeah. Chung Tat Ming knows, and they are living in a crappy hotel, and the front row seats is only the front row of the when all the gamblers arrive, and they're standing there like photographers would be, taking f- photographs, and they're just standing there with their glow sticks and uh, cheering him on that way. I, I, I like that banter back and forth, but again, one joke in a 100-minute movie, <laughs> and that was good. Stanley Ho, uh, just for some context, is one of the richest men in Hong Kong, he does actually own uh, a couple of the big casinos and hotels um, in Macau. Uh, he's well known, uh, second only really to Lee Ka Sing, if I know my uh, tycoons correctly. Um, and he is the father of uh, Josie Ho, the actress. That's so, right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so I, I like that. that. That was actually very, very funny. Uh, and that, that he was a fish vendor instead. Like, hey, hey, this is Stanley Ho. Like him? Yeah. Didn't I tell you? That's <laughs> guy. And and I did the surprise appearance of uh, a lightsaber while they're cheering on Kochun. I thought was well timed as well because everybody's yeah. standing there with their light sticks, like go go go. And Anita Yun pulls up a green lightsaber. Go Kochun! Go Kochun! Yeah, that one, that one, that bit worked well. Two things out of a one hundred minute movie doesn't make that doesn't make it worth it. Uh, and it, again, it's not this Hong Kong movie where. I've said on record many times that I can watch a movie with 99% unbearable crap and then some great thing happened, like an action finale, and it becomes sort of awesome. But those are 80s and 90s movies that are not aiming for much. And they can't because they're not skilled at it, but they can still become very enjoyable. This is aiming a lot higher and... I don't know if that makes sense or not, but it's it wants to be a movie, and therefore I feel I can criticize it when it doesn't work a little bit more. There are some there are some other notable uh, uh, character actors who show up. Uh, Chung King Fai is the sort of adopted father, I guess, uh, mentor figure who's uh, in charge of uh, you know teaching Ko Chun, Ko Ngol, and uh, their I guess uh, his adoptive uh, daughter, played by. Uh, uh, Gigi Langwinke as a hang. Initially, I think that's a pretty interesting, you know, setup. And there's a twist that comes out uh, a little bit later with uh, Chung King Fai's character. Kind of, yeah. I mean, you kind of see it coming, but I, I wasn't expecting it the first time I watched the film um, because he's a very good actor, and I think he, you know, he was able to convey. He's able to convey this this sense of peacefulness. I guess uh, is the word I would use. That made me trust him the first time I watched this film. And there's, you know, there, there are obviously some actors who come in and it, immediately you know they're going to be the villain. And I didn't have that sense that I remember uh, watching with, with uh, the, the first time through. Yeah, uh, Gigi Lung, of course, is here as the older uh, Hing, very, looking very young, super skinny, uh, with long hair. Of course, she's much more known for her short bobbed hair now. Uh, also probably equally well known for having stolen Ikin Cheng. 
away from actress Maggie Sue. That that was like angry Paul Fox coming out like, hey, I've got to tell you something what I don't like now. <laughs> like, this is this is this is big. This was big big news over here uh, in Hong Kong that uh, and and she was much derided by many. Was it like adultery involved or what was going on there? I don't think so. I didn't. I don't know a lot of the details, but a lot of people said that yeah, he was. Uh, you know, uh, she was kind of with him while he was with Maggie and kind of pulled him away. She's kind of she was kind of labeled blamed with that. But of course, it takes two to tango. So, uh, you know, since then, she's they, they, of course, split up as she married some Spanish guy uh, back in 2011. And uh, she just had a baby last month from what I read. So, yeah, I mean, good, good on her. She's continued working. She's somebody for me who's hit or miss. Uh, you know, it's not somebody I particularly would rush out to see. She's had some good roles in the past. She's had some roles like really annoying. Um, Wonder Woman comes to mind from a few years back. Uh, but, you know, every once in a while she'll, she'll have some stuff that, uh, that I tend to like. You can also spot a very young Moses Chan here as one of the rival gamblers who pops up. You, you, know, you know what I noticed about that because this movie sinks sound? His voice seems naturally quite hoarse. And uh, and I've heard him dub dubbed like that as well. So possibly he's like a dubber has tried to echo that, or he's dubbed himself that way. Um, which is uh, yeah, that, that, that's apparently the sound of his voice. He he's a lot more active. He did a film just uh, this past year, which apparently is very very good. That I'm trying to get to see, but it's not out on video yet. Called uh, Dot to Dot, a little bit more of an artistic film that's gotten some pretty good reviews. But he's done. He does a lot of TVB drama now. Uh, mm-hmm. That's you know he he's pretty well known for that and so of course that's all sync sound so you get to hear him uh i think he was overdoing the hoarseness of his voice for this role right right, Uh, right. because it's not it it, he that is his voice but it doesn't sound quite as coarse when you hear him uh do his stuff and he's very famous now as a as a coffee expert and he's done some spots for like mick mick cafe before uh, some years earlier and and he's known as a sort of a coffee connoisseur. He's had some. I drink coffee. Yeah, exactly. I like coffee. I'm Moses Chan. Uh, so it's been it's been fun to see his uh, career develop. And he's somebody that both me and my wife like. So whenever he does have a TPB drama coming up, we try to make time uh, time to watch it. Uh, who else? Oh, Colin Cho. Uh, so for fans of you know the Matrix or some of the uh, more recent uh, Four trilogy that came out, uh, Colin Cho shows up here as a as an assassin, uh, he has a couple scenes with uh, uh, Jordan Chan face off at a couple times, and uh, th- yeah, one of the one of the, the the fight sequences. I don't know if you remember this. Um, he's going to, I guess he's going to, I forget why he, he was being sent to kill Kochan or something, uh, but he's going to Elvis Tsui's house, and there's a scene where he uses the blowgun, right? Uh, and to to knock out like one of the lookouts at the house, one of the guards. He he uses this blowgun, he blows it, and then he just like casually passes it behind him to the to like some crony guy behind him who just takes it, looks at it, and then runs off like at top <laughs> speed. Which is just it was just such a weird scene, and I made a note of it. I'm like, why? Who does? I just use this blowgun. Here, take it. And he's it's like, gonna blow. Oh. And and he's just like, yeah, like it's a piece of dynamite. He runs off super excited with it. And, of course, later, um, he, you know, this this crony, no-name crony guy, um, I guess he was so in awe of Colin Joe using this. So he's got it, and he's going to use it now. And, of course, Jordan Chan jumps up and reverses it and blows it back down the guy's throat. 
Uh, so there is a little bit of payoff to that scene, but that scene was just so weird the way he like reacted, like I've got the gun now and I'm going to go do something cool. Yeah. It's just some, some weird moments like that. But, but by the way, uh, Wong Jing uh, goes on repeat here with the whole possible amnesia or not for culture. And he, uh, I disliked the movie before I even, I disliked it more when, when they do the whole scenario where they send in culture acting like a kid. I don't know what's going on. I'm stupid. To yeah. gamble with people, and it's the same damn scenario as uh, in God of Gamblers one, but not done as well at all. I mean, it's just uh, Leon Lai, of course, looks the part. He can act like all wide-eyed. Hi, I'm a kid. I'm a kid. I don't remember anything. Ooh, a chocolate. It's like it's an awful reminder of something good, and especially so because it isn't done well here. It's not an extensive section of the movie, the whole possible amnesia or not, because he gets shot in the head here, so it's a darker. Uh, transition to the period where he's, uh, you know, in a coma or doesn't know who he is. But uh, it, it's still, it's, it's since it's the same, it's certainly not interesting. And having like him, his, he lo- he loses his uh, sense of taste, and the only thing he can taste, as it turns out, is chocolate. Oh my god, we get chocolate in this movie. Don't care about that either. It doesn't add to the whole arc at all. Yeah, I know. I know they're trying to build the, you know, the backstory of the character. It just it it feels a bit tacked on. And it looks disgusting, by the way. That scene with the chocolate, it looks disgusting. They're just jamming that chocolate in his mouth. You better eat it, Leon. Uh, well, how many of us wouldn't like wouldn't mind doing that to Leon? I'm just kidding. <laughs> you know, I, t- I mentioned before uh, in the when we were talking the last film that one of the things about this movie that bugged me was some of the repetitive gambling aspects. So um, in one of the earlier gambling scenes, he's gambling with um, a, a couple people who aren't really important in the overall scope of the film, but they use the three of a kind trick and they've used this before and they use it again here. And and it may look cool the first time to the audience, but you would think that these people he's playing against are somewhat professional gamblers and they could not be fooled by a three of a kind trick. And so basically the way that this trick works is, you know, they've got the cards on the table and it looks like he has a very low two pair of something, right? And so the, 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 like the other people have also two pair and they'll have a higher two pair. And, you know, they might have a couple face cards as a two pair or two aces as a two pair or something. And then they'll be all very cocky and they'll say, oh, at the most you have blah, 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 blah. And then, of course, he flips over the last card and it's three of a kind and it's a win. But if they're really good gamblers, they know in their mind that, no, at the most, he probably has three of a kind and he could possibly beat this hand that I just put down, right? So why are they, they wouldn't be that cocky in a real match because they'd know that there's that chance that he's got that winning hand that's Mm going to beat their hand. And so here again, it's just, you know, it's like Wang Jing making the no-name gamblers kind of dumb, but if these people were really professional gamblers, if they really knew gambling, they wouldn't actually be that dumb. They wouldn't be cocky when they know that there's a chance that, hey, he's got three of a kind and that's going to beat me, uh, you know, because that, you know, it might be a low percentage, but, you know, it's a percentage and that, that can happen. And of course it does. And he wins and goes on to, the, you know, the next thing. Things like that are a little bit lazy, I think, mm. in terms of what, and because and, and, there's only so much you can do, right? And we talk about the need to escalate certain things. Uh, throughout this series because there's you know there's a limit to the kinds of winning hands you can have and the kinds of tricks you can play especially when you're dealing with a film that's not going to go the supernatural route right yeah, exactly. it's not going to go for for the laughs and things so there's really only so much you can do of course one of the things they do here to escalate it is now we're not just betting for big sums of cash but now you've got to bet your hands 
I'm going to take your hands. And, and so, you know, this, of course, is an escalation that leads on to later series that I think we see if you, if you get into some of the con man films and things where the escalation goes even further in some cases in terms of what's being bet. The, uh, the idea here is that, you know, so if you lose, you lose your hands. And the, the funny thing, the thing that made me just laugh, and I know it wasn't meant to be funny, but when you think about the context, so they're at this casino, right, this official casino, and I think it was the Lisboa, an actual casino in, in yeah Macau. yeah yeah because the crappy hotel they move into is the hotel lisboa and it's it's part of that gag i explained so yeah you know they, they're they're like okay uh you know he's lost now what do they do they bring out the official casino axe yes right they have they have an axe on standby so it's like and it's not just like a fire axe it's like this actual you know fancy looking special axe that so the expectation is i guess this kind of thing goes on and the casino is prepared they didn't send some guy out to the hardware store right they've got the official axe and they kind of bring it out and the camera's on it and it's kind of like you know ceremoniously being carried across the room and it just made me laugh you know think thinking about that context they, they got it from the gift shop yeah indeed <laughs> this is your souvenir axe but by that point obviously the yeah i've confirmed that this gambling finale isn't like gonna be able to turn any heads i mean when all is said and done it's a technically competent film and it looks you know professional and all of that but it doesn't matter at all nothing really matters and we don't care about how this story now has been filled in the only thing i care about is the fact that maybe he had this idea wong jing in reality they should have done a long mm, spin-off movie starring jordan chan because and get the same action team back i think there was potential there to do some really kick-ass action here it's, it, it obviously is quite exaggerated at points but the violent streak that that character brings to the movie is so damn compelling that uh i admire it so much and it's a shame it never really happened it never happened as far as i know anyway yeah I, I mean jordan is the thing to watch really in this film but it's unfortunate that even with some of the action it gets a little bit lazy at places um there's there's a great scene and the, the reason why i say this it's a great and terrible scene for for two reasons it's great because what you see is jordan chan as the long character taking a bubble bath not taking a shower like a manly man but he's actually in a bubble bath <laughs> and of course is that something the character would do or do they do that so that they can just script out this this particular scene so the you know killers burst into the bathroom and of course he shrinks down in the water and these are the dumbest killers on record you know they're like oh there's a bubble bath here but i can't see anybody nobody's here all right let's go you know and you know then of course uh, stuff comes out and 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 you know i guess they shoot up the room first before they break in but it's they're terrible shots because when you look at the at the film at the, the way they're shooting the um the room you see you know it's a shot and there's the bath and there's the curtain and there's a wall off to the left hand side in the shot and then they do these close ups of the bullets hitting that wall that side wall not the wall behind him. So these guys are not only the dumbest criminals, they're the worst shots in the world. And it was obviously, I mean, they're just, you know, doing a close-up of technical squibs on the wall. But it's just, in in the continuity of a fight scene, you know, or an action scene, it's it's lazy. It doesn't make a lot of sense. But, you know, it's worthwhile to watch Jordan Chan taking a bubble bath as Long 
I told you we should have brought blowguns. <laughs> These guns. <laughs> yeah. We're not good at shooting guns. We should have brought blowguns. That'll be good. Yeah, I don't have any other notes, man. I mean, I don't recommend it at all. You don't need a backstory. And if you're desperate to have a backstory, you don't need to see this either because the, the, there's a better movie to be made with a backstory to court you. But I personally have no interest in it because I've, it's not begging to be uh, enhanced, really. And there's, I mean, if there's a couple other better movies that take very similar themes and run with them. So if you're looking for a movie that's about sort of a father, a foster father figure who betrays his kids and the kids having sort of a love triangle rivalry, look at, you know, Once a Thief with Chow Yun-Fat, right? If you're, you know, looking for uh, a film where Anita Yun is in a hospital and needing to have somebody to emote with her who's not just a cardboard cutout, <laughs> look for, you know, say, Levy Manchuri with, with Lao Ching Wan and you get that. So there, there you know, there are, there are things here that are good that are better elsewhere. The one thing, again, that I agree with is look for, you know, this film is a Jordan Chan film, and it's unfortunate that this was not uh, a prequel story solely focused on his character, you know, how he, you know, came about and, and, and you know, just solely following, you know, following him. That, that's a film that, that I think during this period could have been made and, and would have been very successful I think so. uh, with, with him at the helm. We we ended on a sour note, people. But hey, I, I thought this was good to have in terms of the context of the show. You know, we've gone back back in time several times, and uh, we've done the forward sequels, and now we do the prequel. And uh, yeah, to to cover all the performers, uh, I suppose uh, that's the backstory for you, people. And as for availability, this had a universe DVD release that was decent for a low price. Um, normally, at that time, they were really low price. These non-anamorphic DVDs you can get them for thirty to forty Hong Kong dollars. So that that was like a like heaven for a collector to just buy randomly and try out movies because of that low price. It is listed as out of print or out of stock right now. So uh, and no upgrade has been uh, made to it. Uh, Universal or not in the game to like upgrade their past uh, catalog titles or anything like that. So th- this was the only DVD we got in Hong Kong as far as I know. Uh, so that, that's as easy as that. It's not uh, really available, but uh, if you can find it online, online or used to them. And if you really want to, then check it out, but don't pay a lot for it. That's my recommendation, I suppose. Uh, we're done. Uh, gambling season is over. And uh, there's plenty more to cover, of course. This was the selection me and Paul thought was suitable to give you during this short series, to give you an idea of how God of Gamblers evolved starting in 1989 and how the sequels and spin-off worked. And, uh, of course, Hong Kong cinema was quite heavy on gambling movies during this period that featured no God of Gamblers, uh, you know, low-budget, heroic, bloodshed gambling cash-ins were out there. And they were enjoyable for what they were. The trashy cash-ins, you know. Often not having to do with Wong Jing and even Taiwanese stuff that tried to riff on it all. Good, good fun, good fun. Wong Jing would do a movie in 1995 called Saint of Gamblers starring Eric Cott and Uman Tat. And uh, I believe that is the same Uncle Tat who's now got a different... Prodigy, uh, prodigy, if you will. Um, remember seeing it. Remember thinking it was okay based on the fact that I expected it to be horrible. So, uh, but we didn't choose to cover that. Uh, the directors of All for the Winner made a sequel or spin-off to that uh, called The Top Bet, starring Anita Moy as the casino sister of uh, Stephen Chow's character in that movie. Features a Stephen Chow cameo. Th- those were the movies. Uh, we didn't want to cover because we thought we'd keep it to a neat, lean series. But uh, here's the twist. 
we're not done <laughs> with gambling season. <laughs> because hopefully, going up at the same time as this episode is a website-exclusive bonus episode on the Wong Jing-directed 2014 movie from Vegas to Macau, starring Chow Yun-Fat and... God damn it, who else is starring in it? Uh, is it Ch- Chapman Toe or Nick Chia? Uh Chapman Toe and Nicholas Singh. Yeah. They're both in it, okay. So, And you can only download this episode from the website. It will never go up on iTunes or any other podcatcher. So if you have an interest in how the gambling genre fares in 2014, when Wong Jing is heading it, check it out. So, Paul, to do a bit of a tease, because you, you've seen From Vegas to Macau, is it... A tease and minor spoiler, I suppose. Is it part of the God of Gambling series or standalone? We could say it is part of the series in 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 uh, in a very 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 loosely connected sense. Um, there's a reference that puts it within the universe there, and that's a reference we'll talk about. I know it wasn't superbly like to anything, but the 3D sequel because this made money and this is film business. Therefore, you got to do business. The 3D sequel is doing ridiculously well, mainly in China. I don't, I, I don't think there's similar numbers in Hong Kong for the sequel. If it's even open in Hong Kong. <laughs> yeah, no, it has, unfortunately. The, the sequel has done well, as so well, in fact, that there's going to be a third one next year, which I think Andrew Lau is attached to. So, okay, but uh, there, there's business for you in China. The power of the Chow, at least in China, and the power of gambling, I suppose. Um, uh, because it, again, it's it's a blockbuster. It, it, I don't I don't know if the first one was a blockbuster. It certainly did well enough to warrant a 3D sequel. Gambling cards coming at you, I bet. But uh, we'll not do the sequel. We'll do the first movie and like stick into that just to get a feel for what it's like in 2014. So that's what we're doing in a website exclusive bonus episode. So check that out if you have the interest. And in the meantime, we'll finish off with some contact information. This has been Podcast on Fire and Gambling Season on the Podcast on Fire Network. We have our website at podcastonfire.com where you'll find this show and all the bonus episodes and all the other shows, of course. Email us if you have any questions or feedback, podcastonfire at googlemail.com. Like our page on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash POF Network. Join the discussion group. It's called Podcast on Fire Network, so you can find it easy that way. Our Twitter handle is at Podcast on Fire. I have a variety of uh, gambling movie reviews on my site, sogoodreviews.com. I mainly focus on uh, Hong Kong adult movies, ninja movies from IFT, and Taiwanese movies. But uh, I also review a variety of genres. And I also have video reviews up at sleazykvideo.com. And my Twitter handle is at sogoodreviews. Podcast on Fire is, as I've mentioned before, on iTunes. If you use it for uh, for your pod- as a podcast delivery system to you, uh, rate and subscribe. And if you have the time, please leave a written comment as well. We would love to see some more up there. And my final plug, Stitcher Radio is the way to stream the various shows on the network, including this one, either from their website or using the application available on the Apple App Store or Google Play. And your plugs, Paul, your other podcast and your hub, if you will. Yeah, you can just uh, head over to concast.com, K-O-N-G-C-S-T dot com, and uh, anything and everything we're doing is going to go up over there. Are you doing From Vegas to Macau, too? Because of the sheer number of films that came out um, during the Chinese New Year period, and because we're just focusing on one film a week, and in an effort to try and stay fairly current, uh, we've, uh, we pass that one by. Um, we may come back and and visit that one later, uh, but I think we might uh, possibly try to pitch that on a future show on your network here with uh, the Dynasty Report. 
Okay, gotcha. Well, that'll give me a good excuse to not watch it then. And just, <laughs> yes. just sit back and watch you suffer. <laughs> and uh, that would be a good excuse indeed. All righty. But we're done. Thank you very much, everybody, for listening to this uh, free pot series on gambling movies. It was enjoyable to do. And thank you, Paul, for joining me on all free shows. Uh, I really wanted your Hong Kong perspective on certain things, but I know you like these type of catalog vintage title as well so it's in your wheelhouse regardless if you were based in hong kong uh, anyway so uh, so so thank you very much and thank you for inviting me on it's a pleasure always to be here and to talk with somebody about these movies that i'm passionate about that i think shares an, an equal passion for it's just you know it's really really good fun and and hopefully uh people who are listening to this have enjoyed them and uh you know um yeah just thanks again yeah we we share a common hatred for leon lai so there you go that, no, that's one thing we learned from this show like yeah, let's go out and get him <laughs> like let's get some chocolate and jam them in there Leon like, here you go anyway thank you very much and I've been Kenneth with me was Paul Fox so say bye 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 bye